The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yes, we've got Ben Watkins versus perspective philosophy i'm gonna go ahead and just uh get this thing rolling perspective philosophy the floor is all yours hello there uh really nice to be back on here very nice to see ben uh happy to we've i think we've spoke only on twitter so it's nice to actually finally you know put a put a face to the conversation you know uh but yeah like it's um tonight is obviously theism versus atheism from two hegelians and I'm incredibly unprepared for this. I've I've been writing on something entirely different, so I haven't formulated an argument. So the way that I think would be best to proceed is outline just how I think about it and from my perspective. If and then obviously if Ben has any criticisms or questions, obviously I'm sure he'll hone in on specific metaphysical and epistemological points that he would like to drive home, and I'll do my best to refute them. Okay. So since I'm given the affirmative, I'm Going first. So I would begin really from my perspective with a cosmological argument. I would say specifically an argument from sufficient reason. I would take primarily a Leibnizian uh, or Leibnizian-esque view in that I think for every fact, there must be a sufficient reason. Um, so if all contingent objects do not contain do not contain the reason for their own existence. So for example, like that, that's what defines a contingent object. So why does this table exist? Because someone, you know, cut down a tree, you know, formed the wood, put it together, finished it, and then put it in the store and I bought it, right? So that causal chain which pre-existed the existence of this object is the explanation, is the sufficient reason for the existence of this object. And more logically speaking, it identifies that all identities specifically or identifies with all identities. It indicates that all identities have, if they are contingent and not necessary, must have an, an other identity which essentially led to their existence. So this establishes a chain of reason which allows for the capacity for an explanation. So then I can say, you know, this is what an object is and it can be understood as such. And Aristotle was the first to identify this, which is why he came up with the, the four causes, which include a, an efficient cause and a final cause, the beginning, the beginning of an instance of a being and the end instance of a being. And what we call the being is essentially the unity of the, the start of its identity and the end of its identity. And this has been something that's been debated for a long time, whether this actually exists or not. Um, we'll see if we get so far. But... So long as we accept that this identity is real, there had to be some sort of cause which led it to come into reality. Now, if this chain is established and that all contingent beings must have a reason for their existence, then it can either form an infinite regress or it must end in a perfectly actual being or a perfectly... Uh, or a perfectly necessary being in Leibnizian terms. This means that they, it contains the reason for its own existence. 
So the reason for its own existence can only be understood in relation to itself, that it can't actually be explained by something prior to it. So, you know, the a being's existence is in relation to someone having done something else or someone having created it. This would be what we could usually call potential or possibility. Uh, but in this case, we'll call it contingency. This is something which essentially marks a limitation of a being, something which indicates that there is something causing it external to itself. Okay. Um, it can either be an infinite regress or something which is necessary, which has no causes external to itself. It is causa sui, absolutely self-caused. My point is to basically argue that this chain of reason cannot be an infinite regress, that an infinite regress leads to having no causal chain because the infinite implies that there is actually no first established uh, rational structure which allows for the contingent being to be explained. We're having to explain it through um, essentially a, a never-ending series of infinite beings which owe their existence to another infinite being, which owes its existence to another infinite being. And the, the first movement of this chain never occurred. There is no first movement. Um, as such, there is no reason to believe that there will be a last movement or to believe that this causal chain could just simply cease from existing. Um, therefore, there has to be a necessary being. There has to be a being which is necessarily absolutely self-caused. So that is essentially a very uh, broken down view of the Leibnizian argument for sufficient reason. It's been given many different names. It originated from the Aristotelian cosmological argument. Uh, a lot of people use the Calum cosmological argument. It's one in favor of arguably mostly today. Uh, I think Leibniz gave the best one because from a Hegelian standpoint, everything, and from even from an Aquinian standpoint, everything boils down to identity. Everything boils down to a logical unity, not necessarily um, just a sort of material existence or whatever it may be. It doesn't have the same metaphysical baggage. So I think the Leibnizian one's the best. So from that point, I would move on to a teleological argument. So I would basically say that this uh, this unity, this uh, this movement or change that we like to perceive in, uh, in relation to uh, sufficient reasons uh, implies a unity between a being's first, first cause and its last cause. This unity we would call an identity. For every identity, what we are positing is, is essentially an essence, something which absolutely explains the being's existence. Every being and its movement then must be trying to essentially establish its essence. So an, the existence of a being is the attempt to establish its essence. So in other words, every first instance of its being is being drawn towards the last instance of its being. Now, that might sound like strange. Why would it be drawn and not necessarily accidentally moving or, or whatever? But the, the point is to establish that the unity of the first and last in terms of the identity of the being and what establishes the meaning of an identity of a being is essentially the unity, the rational principle which unites the first instance of the being and the last instance of the being. That would be its essence. So a being, all beings are understood relative to their essence. All beings must aim towards the completion of their essence in order for change to actually be a conceivable and understandable process. 
So all beings are essentially trying to actualize themselves. So we're in a process of actualization. This is where we would normally argue from potency to actuality. You could see it from, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, from uh, sufficiency to necessity, if you like, if you like. Uh, that which is perfectly actual is perfectly complete. So if there is an absolutely necessary being with no causes outside of itself, which I'm hoping that the first argument is establishing, that being is absolutely uh, united. Uh, it is perfectly complete and it's perfectly good. And moreover, it establishes what is an identity relation that is absolutely one with itself. It is something which unites being and essence which means that it is possible and necessarily possible that a being can obtain its essence. If a being cannot obtain its essence and it is impossible or does not obtain its essence necessarily, then there can be no description of their being existence, which means that you wouldn't actually be able to say there was a, a unified existence. So existence and its essence must necessarily be united to have established a concrete identity. And then this relates to what is uh, very famously understood as the ontological argument. The ontological argument is to say that a perfectly uh, that it is better for a perfect a perfect being to exist than to not exist. Now, the reason I would say that essentially it is better for a perfect being to exist than than not to exist and therefore must exist actually makes sense is because uh, uh, one, I would reject the Kantian view that existence isn't a predicate to some degree. But moreover, what we're actually talking about is that a being's good in the first instance, from as the teleological argument is to establish, is its completeness. A being which is necessarily complete is perfectly good. And so it is perfectly united. So if, the, if we are to talk about any form of actual existence, we're going to talk about a being which is perfectly one with its essence. And, you know, I'm sure, Ben, you'll know from the Thomistic point of view, that is essentially God. A being which is absolutely one with its essence. Um, so when we say that a perfect being absolutely must exist because it's better to exist, that is true. Now, I do acknowledge some limitations to this argument. I don't think the Kantian refutation was a good one. I do think that Aquinas's refutation is the better uh, refutation, which is essentially to say, I can't imagine that being. Um, I can't perceive the absolute unity of existence with itself. Um, you know, Hegel would call this absolute knowing. And so that would be at the end of history. But as you'll know, that is the necessary goal from which everything is aiming towards for Hegel. It is the absolute unity of essence, of existence with its essence. And so change as we are perceiving it from, you know, the cosmological standpoint, uh, well, from the teleological standpoint is moving towards this absolute ontological unity. So the the cosmological and the teleological argument essentially establish uh, are established by the ontological argument. So if you were to refute the ontological argument, you would essentially refute the cosmological and teleological argument. But the point of the ontological argument in many ways is really just to establish that there has to be a unity between being and essence, a perfect unity between existence and essence. Um, and without that unity, essentially, truth wouldn't function. They wouldn't actually be able to have a con coherent conception of reality. There would be no end and beginning, which would allow for uh, a point of analysis, which we could say things are changing, that change can be understood, that we can identify individual specific beings in relation to that causal chain or that uh, chain of sufficient reasons, 
and so we wouldn't have uh, the existence of individual facts. So uh, with that, yeah, that, that's why I personally believe. I think a lot of people would probably find that a lot of a bit of a mouthful. And um, I'm sorry I haven't been able to maybe formulate it a bit better. But, um, you know, I'm happy for, for Ben to press us on any of that. And if there's anything I can do to clear things up, I'm happy to do it. And thank you. I'll forfeit the rest of my time. Well, for someone who uh, claimed to be unprepared, you certainly volleyed up a great intro. Well done. Uh, oh, that was before great. I, before I pass things on to Ben, I just want to let everyone here know uh, you're watching Modern Day Debate, a neutral platform for topics like religion, science, politics. Our vision, our goal here is to create a safe space for people to come uh, put their arguments to the test against other people. And uh, so far, we have done pretty well with 130,000 subscribers, but we don't want to stop there. We want to keep going. So if you want to be able to say someday, I remember Modern Day Debate when it only had 130,000 subscribers, now is the time to hit that subscribe button. And uh, while you're on your way over to that subscribe button, stop by that little thumbs up and click on that. Also, one last quick thing, 13 days from now, if you think the temperature is hot in Austin now, just wait. In 13 days, Modern Day Debate is going live on stage. So you guys can pick up some tickets in the description below. And if you are not in the Austin area or not planning to move there in the next 13 days, you can still support us at an Indigo campaign also in the description below. Um, ben, with that, if you're ready, the floor is all yours. Uh, right. Do I need to share? Yes, you do. Can you see it? Nope. Nope. You got to click on the screen share there. Got it. Perfect. All right. Um, let me begin by first thanking Lewis for agreeing to have this discussion with me. I've been really looking forward to this, to be able to kind of take a deep dive into metaphysics. And I also want to thank Modern Day Debate for inviting us on. My aim is to defend the following claim. I'm going to defend the claim that rather than believing God has created mankind in his own image, we should instead believe all gods were created in our image. Both Lewis and myself agree our experiences make the world um, more intelligible to us, but where we differ is in our explanatory frameworks, that is, in how we explain why the world is the way it is. I take Lewis to be what's called a perfect being theist, or theist for short, where theism is the view there is a supernatural, non-physical mind over and above the natural causal order. God has certain properties to an infinite degree, power, wisdom, and benevolence, creator and designer of the natural world, Lord and Savior, and a being wholly worthy of our reverence and worship. If we want to understand ourselves and our place in the universe, we will need to appeal to God's intentional creative activity. In other words, we are an explandinum, and God is the explanans. By contrast, I'm a metaphysical naturalist or naturalist for short. Um, metaphysical naturalism is the view that the causal order is nothing over and above the natural causal order. That is, there are no supernatural, non-physical minds like God, 
demons, or any souls. Metaphysical naturalism entails there is a natural history of religion where God is explained as a human phenomena. If we want to understand the gods, we should understand how they are created in our image rather than as be as us being created in theirs. Metaphysical naturalism reverses the order of explanation from that of theism. Rather than God as an explanandum, we are the explanands. Though I will make use of both inductive and deductive inferences, it's important to realize my case is broadly abductive. Abductive reasoning appeals to explicitly to explanatory considerations, which is why they are sometimes called inferences to the best explanation. It involves selecting the most probable explanation among various competing explanations. Because this method is broadly probabilistic, it doesn't guarantee certainty like a mathematical demonstration would, but it does aim to find the most reasonable view to believe given the available evidence. We can visualize abductive reasoning using a helpful schema from the philosophy C.S. Peirce. Um, the first sta uh, stage of the schema is to observe some surprising fact, then to understand how that surprising fact would be a matter of course given some hypothesis, and then hence we would have some reason to suspect that hypothesis to be true. If the initial probability of the evidence is low and a hypothesis entails it, then the probability of that hypothesis given the evidence is greater than the initial probability of the hypothesis. If we interpret there is reason to suspect that H is true as the probability that the evidence is true given the hypothesis is greater than the initial, uh, initial probability, then we can prove Pierce's schema using Bayes' theorem. Because I'm making use of both Pierce's schema and Bayes' theorem, I need to say something about the prior probability of theism and naturalism. That is, the probability either view is true given only our background knowledge. Prior probability is important in this context because one of my aims will be to show that naturalism is a better explanation than theism because Naturalism has better trade-offs between explanatory power and prior probability compared with theism. The prior probability of a hypothesis is determined by its scope, simplicity, and its consistency with our background knowledge. Given that naturalism and theism constitute comprehensive worldviews, I will assume their explanatory scopes to be roughly equal. According to Occam's razor, all else being equal, we ought to favor simpler hypotheses over more complex ones. And simplicity is a function of elegance and parsimony. Naturalism proves simpler than theism on both accounts. In terms of parsimony, naturalism requires fewer ontological commitments. All plausible worldviews share an ontological commitment to a natural causal order, making it a fundamental subset of any plausible worldview. However, the ontological commitments of theism are over and above any natural causal order, requiring entities like God, heaven, and souls. Furthermore, hypotheses can be deemed less elegant if they evade refutation solely by invoking ad hoc assumptions. Hence, hypotheses are less simple the more unfalsifiable they are. Theism often relies on such ad hoc assumptions regarding God's psychology, such as his goals, preferences, and beliefs, or theodicies attempting to explain the presence of evil. In contrast, naturalism does not require any such assumptions, rendering theism less elegant compared to naturalism. So naturalism is simpler than theism. 
The last component of prior probability is consistency with background knowledge. Consider, for instance, instance, the entirety of mental activity encompassing known consciousness, the fulfillment of intentions, choices, beliefs, memories, and cognitive processes. These activities are intricately intertwined with physical events, manifested as diverse patterns of neural activity within complex, structured, embodied brains that have biologically evolved. Conversely, proponents of theism posit that God's mind exists over and above anything with a physical location in space-time. If all mental activity in our experience depends on something physical, then the existence of entirely non-physical and unembodied minds becomes improbable relative to that exceptionless experience of physically embodied minds. Given the empirical findings of neuroscience and psychology, which reveal strong correlations between mental activity and physical processes, it becomes probable that all mental phenomena depend upon something physical. Consequently, the claims made by theism are likely to be false for this reason. Given naturalism is simpler than theism, and naturalism entails that all minds are physically dependent, Naturalism becomes more probable than theism. How can theism overcome its low prior probability? Theists ideally seek to compensate for this by emphasizing its explanatory power. However, that will require us to decide what the empirical content of theism is. If God is analogous to a human person, then we might be able to independently specify what God would do in some situation given what a human person would do in an analogous situation. However, as we will see, specifying theism's empirical content in this way will leave it vulnerable to disconfirmation by the problems of evil and hiddenness. Alternatively, we might instead claim God is not like an agent in the sense of having beliefs, intentions, thoughts, or desires, but then it's not clear how the empirical content of theism is any different from that of naturalism. Denying the personal features of God will leave us wondering if the object we are considering could even respond to our religious concerns, like answering prayers, performing miracles, offering salvation, making promises, or even caring about us at all. Additionally, it becomes unclear whether God could serve any explanatory role at all. Let's first consider theistic personalism and suppose God is more like an agent. If there really is any supreme person worthy of the title God, then we already saw its power, wisdom, and love are infinite. By infinite love, I mean a quality of character disposed to eliminate suffering so as far as can be properly done. However, predation, starvation, and disease integral in the biological evolution of human and non-human animals involves a great deal of suffering that someone with infinite power and wisdom could properly prevent. Therefore, there is no being such as God. Notice this is a logical problem. Either God permits the impermissible, what we believe is evil is not really impermissible, or God does not exist. In the words of Friedrich Nietzsche, God's only excuse is that he does not exist. Now, let us suppose either God's power, wisdom, or goodness are finite rather than infinite. This resolves the previous logical problem at a great theological cost, but it does not solve an evidential argument from the people. Um, we can see this with a uh, famous argument from David Hume, and this will be an inference to the best explanation. He says, four hypotheses can be formed concerning the first causes of the universe, that they are endowed with perfect goodness, that they have perfect malice, that they are opposite and have both goodness and malice, that they have neither goodness nor malice. 
Mixed phenomena can never prove the two former unmixed principles, and the uniformity and steadiness of general laws seem to oppose the third. The fourth, therefore, seems by far the most probable. That is, the first causes of the universe are neutral with regard to good and bad. There are parallel logical and ev evidential arguments from hiddenness, too. Some people lose their belief in God through time, while others may have never entertained such a belief at all. Importantly, this absence of belief or lack thereof is neither emotional nor behavioral, behavioral opposi opposition towards God. And God's perfect loves implies maximal openness to relationship. By analogy, a perfectly loving parent ensures nothing they do hinders a relationship with their child. Turning to Nietzsche again, a God who is all-loving and all-powerful and who does not even make sure his creatures understand his intentions, could that be a God of goodness? If a good and loving God is indeed open to relationship, every finite person believes there is a God unless they were resisting such a belief. After all, a belief that God exists is a necessary condition for any sort of meaningful relationship. Therefore, God's love entails that there are no non no non-theists who are not resisting God. However, there are non-resistant non-theists. Therefore, there is no being such as God. Again, one might be tempted to avoid this logical problem by claiming God possesses limited power, wisdom, or love. But this would move would also fail to address the evidential problem of divine hiddenness. Non-resistant non-theists are surprising given theism, but a matter of course given naturalism. This is the purse scheme. So hiddenness, in addition to evil, presents theism with serious evidential challenges. Let's call this the evidential problem, let's call this evidential problem for theism the problem of disconfirmation. We might be tempted to sidestep these worries by following classical theists rather than theistic personalists. Instead, suppose God is less like an agent rather than more. But now the empirical content of theism becomes indistinguishable from naturalism. We lose any grounds we might have had for claiming theism had any explanatory power that is distinct from naturalism. Natural theology is the research project that attempts to justify theism using human reason alone. And my final evidential consideration against theism is that natural theology is noticeably absent from contemporary science. In fact, science has no need for God in the way it needs electrons or black holes. A widely accepted feature of contemporary historical and natural science takes the form of an epistemic rule. Methodolo methodological naturalism is the view that our most compelling explanatory endeavors should proceed as if metaphysical naturalism were true, because theism is a poor explanation in practice. Naturalism is a sufficient, if only provisional, working ontology for our explanatory, explanatory theorizing. When asked by Napoleon what place God had in his model for the solar system, Laplace is alleged to have bluntly quipped back Je ne vis pas boisson de cite hypothesila, which translates to, I had no need for that hypothesis. Whether this event is historically accurate or not is not the point. What it illustrates is a methodological naturalism that has garnered the support of four centuries of historical and scientific progress natural theology has not similarly enjoyed. Naturalistic hypotheses frequently supplant theistic explanations, but the reverse is never observed. Natural entities find their way into our best explanations with little fuss, but supernatural entities always seem to elude our experiences of the world. When comparing theism and naturalism as two competing research projects since the Enlightenment, methodological naturalism has emerged as the preferred explanatory framework, while natural theology has been eschewed. 
when we consider the evidence and the patterns of scientific progress, the success of methodological naturalism is surprising given theism, but a matter of course given naturalism. Again, this is the purse schema. Let's call this methodological problem for theism the problem of theological skepticism. In our examination of the explanatory virtues of theism and naturalism, we found theism wanted. Theism is a low prior probability, little to no explanatory power insofar as God is less like an agent and is disconfirmed by evil and hiddenness insofar as God is more like an agent. Moreover, the contemporary historical natural sciences have made stunning progress within a methodological naturalist framework, whereas natural theology is a failed research project. Naturalism, on the other hand, provides a simple, well-supported, even if only provisional, explanatory framework more, consist more consistent with what we already know than theism. When we engage our best explanatory theorizing based on publicly available evidence, theistic hypotheses enjoy no theoretical advantages over naturalism, or so I argue. I take these four theoretical virtues to be uncontroversially theoretically virtuous, and they justify a theoretical preference for metaphysical naturalism rather than theism. To overcome this, Lewis needs to distinguish his Hegelian form of theism from my metaphysical naturalism, and then explain either how any of these virtues supports theism over naturalism, or will have to provide additional virtues he believes favors theism over naturalism on the whole. And unless until he can do that, I think we have more reason to prefer naturalism to theism. And I'll end there. All right. Thank you, Ben. Well done. Anyone here, in case you're wondering where James is, well, I'll tell you, he's on Mars looking under rocks for peoples with fingers in their ears to let them know that Modern Day Debate is going live on stage in Texas, November 4th and 5th. So make sure that uh, you call all your friends in Austin and let them know they need to go and check out this event. Okay, for those of you who aren't going to be able to make it, no worries. You can show your love and support in the Indigo campaign in the description below. We're about to go into the open discussion section where I'm going to let these gentlemen uh, freestyle some arguments back and forth. But don't be shy. This is not just a two-way street. If you have some comments or questions you want to share via Super Chat, now's the time. It'll be a first come, first serve. So if we don't get to your Super Chat, I'll apologize in advance. Also, please try to keep them respectful if you want them read as written. Okay? Um, I will just quiet myself now and let you gentlemen uh, go free. Have fun. Yeah, well, uh, that was really great, Ben, actually. Uh, so, well, since I did the last, uh, why don't you kick things off with questions? Uh, that, seems, that seems to make the most sense. If you're okay with that? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, um, I actually really enjoyed what you what you said. Uh, I disagree with it, obviously, you know. Um, but I, I can see. Dang, why I was you, so close. I know. <laughs> uh, you know. Um, obviously, I, I see why you you're saying what you're saying. But so just to start from, so we'll start. I think it, 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 there's so much that you covered there that it's actually it's it's actually painfully difficult to work out what is the best part to hone in on. What I did notice overall is that there is a discontinuity between what is like with you you describe yourself as a hegelian right yes and what i would take as a traditionally hegelian stance which is idealism and the naturalistic approach which you're proposing which seems to put existence prior to essence right um uh which is why like you know when you talk about 
you know, man is not made in the image of God, but God is made in the image of man. Uh, that's like a Feuerbach quote, right? Which is the birth of like post-Hegelian materialism. Um, but to start from the the sort of like you know maybe from the the points in which you say that's the 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 sort of uh, refutation or the, the the power of naturalism, the explanatory power of naturalism over um, Hegelianism, why it's superior as a position. So the final one was that naturalism is part of a successful tradition while theism has failed. I mean, that's yet to be established. And I would say like in terms of the scientific tradition, in terms of scientific analysis, for example, my position, which I've just outlined is hundred percent compatible with natural science um, and natural scientific explanations of the way in which physical objects work. Um, so I don't see anything in terms of, naturalism which aids us into in the ways in which we would you know as napoleon says he didn't need it i, I would you know i'm i would argue in terms of the, the principle of sufficient reason that he just hasn't realized that he's been utilizing essentially a deductive principle which implies the existence of god without having taken note of it so whether naturalism is part of a successful tradition while theism has failed i, I think that's yet to be established um naturalism has more explanatory power again I, I think that has to be established in the way that you'd have to you'd have to, be able to say okay naturalism allows us to explain something that theism does not allow us to explain um but i i, I don't see that in fact i see the quite the inverse where the behind the abductive reasoning which you are relying upon for your uh Bay bayesian probabilism is essentially a deductive relation between uh, of identity which hegel points out and which hegel believes to be the foundation of the christian god which is essentially you know existence with itself absolute truth um which he takes to be mind um which i think relates back to the point in which you said that a mind exists only inside of let's say a neurological structure it seems that, that that's completely against hegel um so that's another point which I, i'm a little bit unsure on um but I don't see how, but more of a question, I don't see in what way is naturalism offering more explanatory power. Um, naturalism being more consistent. Um, I don't think that, I think that would, that would rely upon, I, I see what your point is to say that essentially it's relying upon the inconsistencies that would be implicit from um, a failure to outline or um, explain uh, theodicies and like in, in relation to the problem of evil primarily or divine hiddenness um i personally don't think that god is hidden uh i don't think that is there is any actual divine hiddenness per se um and the problem of evil i think is a misunderstanding of what actually is good and evil in the first place um so if if i'm wrong on what good and evil are or whether god is hidden then you're right on that and vice versa you know and then obviously naturalism is simpler I think that the, the, the thing is, is that it, it depends on how you're going to offer an explanation, a formal explanation of the unity of existence with itself that isn't essentially what Hegel would call a mind and in, in relation of uh, absolute knowing, which is retrocausative, right? This This is the establishment which begins the essential logical movement of reality, which explains causation, uh, which explains identity, not in such a way as to be limit to, limited to specific individual instances, but is to explain the formal relation of um, of identities and uh, sufficient reason uh, itself. So I, I don't really see how it, 
a naturalistic explanation is simpler in the sense that it usually ends up positing um, explanations which are incredibly contentious, whether it's, um, you know, like there is a, an infinite number of universes, there is a, a, a essentially a, an infinite number of possible ways in which the universe has been actualized, and uh, they are absolutely being actualized at the same at the same uh, in the same way, and a plethora of other untestable, unverified hypotheses, which you know theoretical physics is filled with. So, I mean, maybe, maybe if you could point towards a naturalistic theory which offers a greater explanation, a simpler explanation than a theistic one. But I can certainly posit naturalistic theories which offer more convoluted and complex ones. So that's where I think maybe we'll kick it off. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, I think now would be a really good point uh, for me to kind of broadly unpack what it is when I say that I'm a Hegelian, because in one sense, I'm kind of saying it tongue in cheek because I'm a, an analytic philosopher and Hegel is just kind of considered the boogeyman devil in analytic circles. And I like, I really want to push back on that because I actually think that Hegel has a lot of valuable insights that the analytic tradition ignores to its detriment. Um, so there's one, one, there's one sense in which I'm being kind of coy by calling myself a Hegelian, but there's another sense in which I'm very quite serious in the fact that I find themes in Hegel that I think are very, very illuminating. Um, at least they have been to how I think about deep questions. And so really kind of the four themes that I find in both Hegel's um, phenomenology of spirit and his science of logic is first being this idea that thought and meaning depend on a community. So this is, uh, uh, Wilfred Sellers expressed this as the myth of the given, this idea that we just kind of have this unmediated pure knowledge that doesn't depend in any way on the social conventions or um, language conventions of our community. Um, I think that's a very deep insight of Hegel. Another theme that I find is that um, knowledge of objects as they are in themselves is always mediated by concepts. So you mentioned earlier how there is this strain of idealism um, that's found in Hegel um, that I do sympathize with, but it's it's what's called objective idealism. And so to use the jargon, um, the idea is that um, the real is the rational and the rational is the real. And so what this means is that the reason that the world is intelligible to us is because we are ourselves products of the world. And so if the world has a rational structure, we have a rational structure, and that rational structure is what allow, allows us to find the world intelligible. Um, and so this is the uh, another theme, probably the most important theme for the way I think, is this idea that thought and beings are abstractions of the same rational whole. So the idea that there's just one reality, but we have these two ways of conceptualizing it. So again, to refer to Wilfred Sellers, he, see, he, he sees... The identity of the world um, being this identity between what he calls the logical space of reasons and the realm of law. And so the logical space of reasons is where we characterize things like agency, reasons, mathematics, logic, ethics. Um, and the realm of law is the causal domain. So it's what's studied by the natural science and where we find all of our experience. 
Um, and then obviously Hegel, the major, major theme that really makes Hegel famous, I think, is the idea that the events of history are the progress of humans towards greater freedom. So Lewis mentioned how there's this idea like history can have an end to it. This idea that there's some, um, trying not to use the Hegelian jargon, but I don't know how to not use it. He calls it absolute knowing. So it's this idea that there's this final point where spirit, what Hegel calls spirit, becomes aware of itself as a thinking thing that knows things in the world. Um, so with those four th themes is really kind of how I approach big questions like the question of God's existence. So, for example, um, to use the thought and being our, our abstractions of the same rational whole. I think that we have a knowledge of things and we have a knowledge of truths and that in some sense, all the things and all the truths that there are in the world are identical to one whole. And so to this kind of takes us deeper into Hegel and more into Neoplatonism, the idea of Plotinus and the, the idea of the one. So there he calls the zeroth form um, matter. He calls um, the first form the one he calls the second the um divine mind and then the fourth the good and so my hegelian picture just cuts out the divine mind just says that look no all you need is matter and the one and then the concept of the goodness and the concept of a divine mind is just unnecessary and so the type of mind that i deny as fundamental at of the universe is the being that has thoughts and intentions and beliefs and makes choices and acts for reasons. So I think that those are all complex um, results of physical arrangements of matter, like a biologically evolved brain. And so I think taking that picture of a person and putting it at the foundational level, at the level of matter and the one I think that's the mistake. I think that's the theistic mistake. That's where I would want to say, no, that's putting God as the explandum and us as the explanands. And instead, we should reverse this, remove the divine mind from the picture entirely. God, then the divine mind becomes the explanandum and we are the explanands. So that's broadly, I know I use a lot of Hegelian jargon. I tried not to, but I just don't know how to express these ideas without using that those terms no no i mean i think that's i think i mean i understand you right but like whether whether anyone anyone i, I know the feeling like trying to transpose this into normal human i know words. there's a lot of pe people who have not read hegel listening to this yeah. going what in the world is he talking about <laughs> specifically i think as well the hegel that you're referencing especially with sellers sounds very brandon yeah. Like oh, a, very yeah, much so. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, Robert Brandom, um, yeah. Wilford Sellers, C.S. Purse. Um, very very influential. John McDowell. They've been very influential. For me. I'm very much classically Hegelian in the sense that I'm right Hegelian. So I'm not even. I'm, I'm not left even Hegelian. That's yeah. why this. Yeah. That's oh, why this no. made so awesome. I heard Feuerbach. <laughs> I heard Feuerbach. Uh, I, you know, it's uh, straight away. Yeah, hundred percent. I threw um, some Nietzsche in there just for good measure. Just yeah. Just because. <laughs> but I, I will say, like, so the, my the, there's some issues there, though. Um, so this first is in this in this in relation of like when you say that like, you've sort of 
this foundation of mana, what do you mean by mana? Uh, and then what do you mean by mind? Because yeah. obviously you, did, you did reference uh, objective idealism or like, you know, Hegel like calls it even, he goes further than objective idealism. He calls it, calls it absolute, I, I often call it objective idealism. So it's no shade, but it, it's all absolute idealism, isn't it? So it's the yeah. unity of the subject and the object to the point of like uh, the absolute, which, which is why it is the, the point of absolute self-awareness. So we're all being drawn to the, towards this point of absolute self-awareness. Now, he points out that we are being drawn towards this point of self-awareness because there is this relation of a real essence in existence um, rather than a sort of theoretical essence. Um, but when we talk about matter, Hegel talks about... So when we talk about mind, it's, it's like a unity of ideas, but we can get on to that in a minute. When we talk about matter... It's, it's very specifically for Hegel, you know, he, he references like the objective world as a petrified intelligence. He doesn't ever say uh, there is a real concrete matter. In fact, like because matter is always given in terms of an essence from which it, it exhibits. Right. So you would say like, you know, if I was to ask you what is a, like what is matter, you'll give me an instance of matter. In which you uh, you might say, oh, this is this is wood, this is copper. You might reference an element, or you might reference, hey, stop that. Or you might reference, um, you know, a, another sort of form of matter. Where, and no matter how far you sort of break this down, you could break it down into, uh, uh, you know, atoms. You'll reference sort of molecular structures. You might reference, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, subatomic particles, and you might reference energy. You know, at the very bottom, you might reference like you know, energy. Um, regardless, you're going to have to give essentially what Hegel sees as essentially a qualitative quantitative distinction, um, a, a relationship. So you're going to say that there, there exists a thing with specific, uh, a, a specific real principality, um, and that there is, and it concretely exists that, that, that actually exists. There is how many of them, what is it, you know, that like, uh, like, so what, what is it and how many of them exist or whatever, um, you could think of this as like an energy in terms of energy. It'd be like a sort of wavelength and amplitude, um, you know, like the quality, the, the sort of specific conditions of the wave with the mathematical sort of um, um, <clears throat> strength of the, like the sort of strength of the wave versus the frequency of the wave. Um, what, so whatever sort of way you're going to break this down, whether it becomes as abstract as energy, it always, it's always going to break down into this point of, of if it actually relating to a form, there is never a, a sort of prime matter as sort of Aristotle sort of refers to right in Hegel. Um, it's always a petrified form, a stagnant specific essence. It's never given a material concrete existence outside of that. Um, and that has to be the case for Hegel because he sees that the empiricist tradition has absolutely failed. And moreover, he's placing essence as essentially the, the primary moving cause of a specific being's existence. It's the unity of a being's existence, right? It's the identity. So to say that it is, let's say, copper, wood, or whatever, is to presume it has an essence, to presume that it has that unity. So do you think that there is these real essences? Um, like, you know, or, or is this like matter some sort of, abstract thing do, do, do you know what i mean uh yeah so um <laughs> short answer it's complicated um yeah. <laughs> um so for me i'm going to want to distinguish between 
abstract objects and concrete objects, but I'm going to want to say that this identity is not sharp because there are that this distinction is not sharp because there is an identity sort of like how there's an identity between water and H2O. Um, we can draw a sharp distinction between the two. Um, you know, water is the stuff that, you know, boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit and falls from the clouds as rain. But we can also say that there's, you know, water in the sense of having um, one um, oxygen molecule and two hydrogen molecules that behave in certain ways at certain temperatures and pressures mm -hmm. and yada, yada, yada. Um, but at the end of the day, they come out to be an identity. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, this one of the ways in which um, I part from Hegel, um, I, I guess, gravitate towards Martin Heidegger, um, the idea that nothing knocks. Um, that was one of his favorite famous. Um, Good old Heidegger. Yeah. Yeah. One of his That's famous good. quotes. And this these ideas have been developed more recently by the philosopher um, Eric Steinhardt and his book, Atheistic Platonism. And so the idea is that um, nothing negates itself. And so the, the reason why there is something rather than nothing is because there is a negation of nothingness. And so a negative times a negative is a positive. And so you get this positive becoming. So the I, um, Hegel in the Science of Logic famously says that, you know, the if our thesis is nothing uh, or is being, then our antithesis, he doesn't use these terms, um, is non-being. Yeah. And so that the synthesis of being and non-being is where we get the idea of temporal becoming. This mm -hmm. idea of, um, in more contemporary literature, is called the sway of the negative. But the idea is here is that this proof more or less gets what's being itself. This is not, this is the, um, again, the only way I know how to uh, talk about this is in abstract metaphors, where so nothingness is like the sea, and being is an island coming out of the sea. And so you can't equate being itself with any particular being. That's the, uh, that, that's a very Hegelian notion, and is that if you want to understand the being hard, itself, you're going to have kernel of the real. I think it's often the surface tension of the water, the hard kernel of the real. Yeah, that oh, that's, captures, oh, yeah. that's such yeah. a great way of, of of visualizing it. Yes, and so at the at the end of all this metaphysical speculation, in my view, is okay. Do we have something that is God, or do we have something that is close to a naturalistic hypothesis that involves something like a hypothesis of indifference, something that is just indifferent to our. Um, religious concerns. So I take us, when we approach this correct this question, we have certain religious concerns. We want to know what is our relationship to this. We want to know what our deepest good is. We want to know if our prayers will be answered. We want to know if evil will be defeated in the end, or we'll find salvation. And so do I have something at the end of these metaphysical speculation um, that resembles this being worthy of wor wor worship and reverence? And so that's where I, got, I came across the two problems. One I called the problem of disconfirmation, and the other one was the problem of theological skepticism. So if we assume that being itself is more like a person, is like us in some analogous sense, then we then we find that being disconfirmed by the problems of evil and hiddenness. So when you said, you know, the explanatory power of naturalism, 
well, the, the hypothesis of indifference built into the to naturalism explains non-resistant non-theists, and it explains all the facts we observe about evil. Right. With theological skepticism, we don't we if we say, okay, look, God's less like us. It's not like you know, we shouldn't I, idolatrize God. He's not, you know, a person personified. He's being himself. Okay, well, now it's hard to distinguish this hypothesis from the naturalist hypothesis that I put on there. This, these other ways of thinking about these metaphysical spe speculations. So the question becomes, okay, we can quibble about simplicity, consistency with background knowledge, but what role explanatorily does God serve at that point? Um, this will bring us back to methodological naturalism. Science needs theoretical postulates like electrons, black holes. Like we can't make sense of our experience of the world without those theoretical postulates. But it seems mm -hmm. that I we, we can um, make sense of the world without postulating a being worthy of our worship, a being that is infinite in goodness, power, wisdom, makes choices, acts for reasons, and cares about us. And this is where you kind of hit the point of thinness, right? Where it's like you can postulate these things without after uh, without actually having taken note of them. So if you postulate, so the whole point of what Aquinas is like saying is like based on the fact that we necessarily have to postulate some good that we end that we are moving towards gives us an argument from graduation, which is essentially the teleological argument, and and likewise, essentially postulating the a universal chain of causation and sufficient reason is what gives us the ability to give uh to allow for explanation and uh, concrete establishment of identities and understanding that there is specific beings in the world so when you talk about for example like this idea that water was um you know this uh the nothing knots and from that point you get this negation of itself which is uh the, i mean that's that's very hegelian as well as much as it's heideggerian i think the difference is with hegel is that he doesn't use uh, it's not that the, you begin with nothing which negates itself. It's that that being and nothing are identical because they're so far abstract from each other that they would be uh, yeah. the same anyway, infinitely unknowable. I'll be and honest think, with you too. My, my Heidegger knowledge isn't, is, isn't quite where it should be yet. Oh, no, no, that's fine. Working on it. Heidegger's one of those, right? But the, the sort of the, the – I mean – Heidegger, like the, 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 we don't need to talk about Heidegger anyway. Like the, the, the point is, is that really – is that when we talk about this hard kernel of the real, like Hegel comes to the point of saying at the end of this that there is uh, a real, concrete, established being. Uh, well, what he calls existence. That the ground, I think he describes it as the ground, which is the unity of identity and difference, which is essentially the that which allows us to postulate a limited, real, concrete object is essentially an invert when it's inverted then we'll have existence and we'll have when we we'll have the unity of of this sort of logical relation then we have um what we would call existence um and the point that he's kind of making here is is to say that there that there, there has to be it's not that there is this permanent state of becoming um hegel says no it, it completes it is completed. That time, there is an end to this, which allows us to say that it's a principled unity in which we can say that existence is a single thing, which gives us credence to be able to say that there is individual things 
in relation to the lives that we live. For example, when you talk about water, you're right in saying essentially, uh, depending upon the language game used to steal a term from Wittgenstein, depending upon the language game that you're engaging in, you've got the the language game of water, which might be you know something you splash around in, you drink, whatever, and you have the language game of essentially uh, like sort of uh, chemistry, and each one, like depending on how you're using that, it has a specific role in a human life. Now, what Hegel's really saying in this is that all essences are in relation to an overall end, which is being, which is essentially positing that there is a correct and a true way of establishing not just one way of a, a, a understanding the world, but the, the the this is where you know you get the right. There is the right way of understanding the world. There is the true and the the complete. Now, this might mean that in various instances, we postulate different substantial considerations of the self, but the self ultimately has to be united in this relation of all facts with each other to the point in which I can say, well, there's the way in which I should talk about water in this instance, and then there is the way in which I should talk about water in that instance, if I'm able to achieve my overall good, which gives meaning to why I'm even establishing, like to steal um, uh, a Heideggerian concept again, the idea of language as a form of equipment. There is an underlying um, predation, predation? Uh, pre uh, precondition of ourselves towards a, an end point and 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 that and that point is a truth a unity and the thing is when you talk about matter you see matter for hegel is is it's an emptiness it, it doesn't have anything other than it that it can actually obtain reality in the sense that it relates to some sort of form so if i say like there is this material existence I'm just positing an an actual concrete idea, which is why he's in a, you would relate that to his objective idealism. But remember, the objective and the subjective are co-defined to the point in which when I'm positing the relationship of a man to water in these ver various instances, both can be correct in relation to an objective reality, which has, which has what Heidegger would call a fittingness of the concept, which is essentially my capacity to relate to it in a way which gives meaning. So, like, I might use language as a form of equipment, but there actually is a, a, a correct and an incorrect way of understanding reality, which means there is an actual real essence. And to say, like, when we re reference something like matter, what we're doing is we're externalizing that. We're saying that we're, we're destroying that subjectivity, which is, uh, which is sort of the foundation of what you're saying here. And if we say, so if we say it's just material, then the essence is unimportant it gets taken away and the matter becomes unintelligible if we say it's just essence then it has no concrete existence it's just in our minds it's subjective so it's either we have to unite and the whole point of hegel is to say that there is this unity of subjective and objective which when you, which when taken to the nth degree gives us truth now he wants to say that that truth is a self-conscious being in his mind um but before we can even get to that point i have to be able to agree with you that what we're observing externally isn't some sort of isn't some sort of material which is alien from an idea and something radically different but is essentially a real logical formal existent you know it's a logos it's a it's a logic 
it's a it's a real quality or quantity and in which case i mean that's all hegel really means when he's talking about ideas right um and that's the sort of the allegorical nature between what we consider like ideas in our mind the positing of uh, uh, words and language which is an essence and the actual thing which we're referencing so uh, um i want to make sure that i had not misrepresented you because i said in my opening um, or at least i define theism as this idea that um, there is a non-physical mind so it's a mind without a location in space-time that transcends the natural causal order but the way you talk about matter here, it almost seems uh, pantheistic in the idea that God is in the universe, is in matter. Like, um, I, w- I mean, I, I would say that I, I, I'm a panentheist. So... Pan- so, so I did. So now that clears it up. So I did misrepresent you in my opening statement because um, I had a dualism of here uh, that the, there was uh, a, yeah, no, a creator no. <laughs> and a creation and so that god stood stands above the world and he has to because he creates it ex nihilo so this is this is a different model of god and i probably should have done a better job oh no I, no it's it's uh, absolutely fine like uh, like uh, like i would i would go so far as to argue that i think that both hegel and aquinas are both panentheists as well but that's that's like an interpretation of like hegel and yeah Aquinas, so, right? like, because i say uh, uh, the way i read a lot of hegel is that you see aristotle you see aquinas and then you kind of see spinoza take it to mm-hmm. another level and then yeah. hegel kind of takes spinoza and goes another um step yeah, well, further. that's the thing from the absolute substance to the absolute but i mean that's the difference between i think our positions right now like i think that fundamentally like your position like are a lot closer you... than what this debate would make it sound like yeah that's the thing like so if, if you're like do you reject the spinozian position of an absolute substance over for the hegelian position of an absolute mind i mean that's the difference really like between our positions i would say that i, I would affirm that there is an absolute mind which is this the absolute knowing which is why at the end of existence is perfect self-actualization of a mind um and a divine mind where if you're from the more Spinozian position, you just say, well, it's it's an absolute substance, but it doesn't have to be aware of itself. Yeah. Uh, well, and, 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 you know, Spinoza's view creates all sorts of problems for like providence. So the idea, you know, the idea that God performs miracles, well, that's going to be problematic because the, the, the natural laws just are the divine will. Um, well, I don't this- think, I don't think, I don't think there's a problem. I, I think that this, this, I think a lot of the time, uh, this approach uh, clears up uh, a lot of the human mistakes that we see uh, around miracles, right? Like where where miracles are interpreted as the as a supernatural, as opposed to natural. Where the Aristotelian teleological approach would say, well, if nature is the substantial will of God, is essentially the end of like God willing Himself, you know, ad infinitum, or or completely then like eternally then what really we're saying is that a, a miracle is only a correct it is essentially it, it is not as natural as the laws of nature right in the same respect it's just a it's just god changing what is a, a, a chain from which he's is uh essentially already established which is absolutely fine because the end goal was always god's will so uh, like 
if 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 we agree that you know God was to essentially if the end is always God, which is what Aquinas is, right? The end of nature is God. The end of all things is God. Um, and I think that means I think that clears things up. But I think that like you know it's whether you you know you, you take that view. Um, we should probably I I know like I know we're very deep in the metaphysics in the metaphysical rabbit hole, right? You know, and I know we should probably move on to what you called the problems of. Uh, well, I mean, I know we need to talk about mind, right? Like, and what you mean by mind, because obviously, right now, it yeah. sounds like I'm an well, absolute. Let me, let me see if I can try to conscious, put right? a point so, on it so that we, for the audience, we can kind of wrap this part of it up and see if you know. Um, I, for my birthday recently, I got uh, from my mom uh, the book by Alyssa Nay, and it's called "The World and the Wave Function," and I've just absolutely been pouring over it for the past couple of weeks. I just, I love it. Um, and so the idea that she gives in this book is um, that the most fund fundamental thing that exists in the universe is a universal wave function of quantum mechanics. Um, and so that all other phenomena emerge from um, this universal wave function. Um, and that's what I'm saying is being itself, really, like that description of the universal wave function of quantum mechanics would be the would be being itself and so we would be able to say about this that it's necessary timeless um purely actual spaceless and sway generous and so i think these were kind of all the the properties that you ascribe to god on your panentheist model and so i want to say that like we stop there like we don't add this additional property of being personal like of having a mind, beliefs, and desires, and intentions, acts for reasons, and has cognition. On your panentheist model, agreeing that God is necessary, timeless, purely actual, spaceless, and sui generis, in what way, like, what does add, if we say, okay, this is God, what does calling it God get us as well, far as natural theology is concerned? And I think, I think that that probably will draw it together where our differences are. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, in it, I mean, I've heard. Um, so I'm actually having a conversation with um, what's he called soon as well. Actually, on a, a pro, and I, I imagine it will dip into this. Um, what's he called? Uh, Bernardo Castro, because I mean, he's big into yeah. this, right? Like, yeah, yeah, he's big into this. And um, I think that the difference is is that, like, so for example, Castro, I think, is very. Uh, partial to your view in this respect um and you know when we talk about the collapse of these wave functions he's he doesn't he doesn't actually say he's unwilling to say that the collapse into the sort of macroscopic reality that we're or not even macroscopic like oh, that's probably the wrong term the sort of what we would perceive as sort of concrete real reality in terms of like the existence of atoms and, and so on like that. He takes that from what I've understood is, is almost illusory. And what exists is actually just this quantum field, right? And that the collapse uh, that we perceive that sort of generates this existence is essentially, uh, it hasn't got any truth of reality in itself, right? Where the view that I'm offering is essentially an explanation of not only why that would collapse, why that necessarily must collapse, but an explanation of 
how it could be understood to exist in the first place. Because the point that I'm, I've been trying to sort of drive home is that if we say that you know reality is constitutive of ideas and we see that these ideas are real essences and that you know there's sort of there is a real qualitative distinction like there are real facts and distinctions in reality that those facts and distinctions in reality are uh purely formal at that foundation right there is no matter in this and but they they are like essentially a, a rational coherence self-coherence um that rational self-coherence, when we're talking about this thing, is a, is a contingent being. When we talk about this uh, relationship that the wave function has to reality in its relation to the its expression through, you know, what Kant would call categories of the understanding, what Hegel calls like the sort of categories that exist in reality. The the difference is is that these categories are given a real substantial existence in a mind. That's the separation between like Spinoza and Hegel, right? Where there isn't these real substantial differences. You you could have this wave function. It's all like everything that that it collapses into is an illusion, but it doesn't explain why it's collapsing. It doesn't explain like why we even believe it exists in terms of having a specific uh, relation to itself, because all it would be is an e existence, and you'd end up with a kind of Kantian noumena. And Hegel's just going to say, well, that's just an immediacy of being, and the immediacy of being is essentially the only way that we can actually even say it exists in the first place is to give it, uh, is to essentially negate it. So I have to say like, no, it doesn't exist. At least it doesn't exist as a one, it exists as a many. And we start positing uh, individual members and the collective of those individual members in its unity now formulates the foundation of that of that being. So the difference is essentially that God in in this perspective is a being which unites every single specific instance or specific particular which this universal has collapsed into in relation to the universal, which would be what Kant describes as singularity and what Hegel calls individuality. So like when we're talking about the individuality of God if or, or even like of minds, when we talk about a mind and we talk about it's just the unity of our perception, right? Like it's the unity of specific ideas in relation to a perceived horizon from which a specific agent is engaging with, right? So what we'll have a specific ideas, which are essentially formal entities related to one another, how they're related to each other uh, is essentially what is essentially the, the unity of the individual. That's what Hegel's saying. And so if we say that reality itself is intimately related to the in this in this way, and it's for, form formally an idea that it's uh, essentially this. Uh, it's not a, a merely a posteriori sort of accident or whatever, but it actually exists in such a way that it has a foundational principle, and this pr foundational principle unites it. Then what we have is a being, which is aware of the principality that unites it. It's aware of its own existence, uh, or that it is a being that is. Uh, conceiving of its own existence, uh, they have the thing thinking of itself, and it's the he's essentially defending the cog, uh, the cogito there, uh, in many ways, uh, and even the Aristotelian prime mover. I think the difference is, is it offers a teleological account for why the events in the causal chain is essentially moving towards an end. Um, I, I remember talking to Emerson, actually Emerson Green, about this, and even just in relation to things like uh, mechanical principles, things like evolution, it offers the benefit of saying, like, actually. The, the reason that these mechanic and this is Hegel again, I'm like, 
there is identities are attempting to gain stability. And once you posit that actually an identity is a trying to gain stability, that's because st the, the, the overall goal is a stable identity. And that, that is essentially what it's aiming towards. And that's a teleological approach. You can't have a teleological approach without positing essentially this unified existence where it is essentially aware of itself. So that's the claim that I find interesting, this, this uh, unity that has to be aware of itself. So like when you say like, how are you cashing out has to be aware of itself. So I would you say know, the unity is the awareness of itself. If that makes the unity it is the aware. Okay, the unity is the awareness of itself. Um, I'm I, stealing I don't it like, straight from Kant. You know, it's like it's, yeah, it's it's because I, it's. I've it's, struggled it's with this myself. Like I, this yeah, is more, like I've I've read this in both Kant and some secondary li literature for Hegel, um, because this is the move that I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't quite see because to me it seems like this move to this unity um, can be achieved with something like an abstract object. Like it's when we start attributing to it something like awareness. Like this unity itself has an awareness, or that the unity is the awareness. The um, this is just where this is the part where I go, I. I don't, well, I, I don't know that, how we get, I don't, I don't know how that moves. Well, I think that's probably because Kant is really, from his perspective, he's seeing that this uniting force is the subject, right? And the subject's categorical. Yeah, we, um, we, our mind, when we come to the object, our minds are the unifying process of it, right? Mm -hmm. And before that, there is actually, there, there's no, like, there's no essence there, right, for Kant. Now for Hegel, it's kind of complicated. There is an essence there. More dynamic. <laughs> yeah, it's more dynamic. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, there is an essence there, but in attempting uh, to like you know in this process of trying to establish a stable identity, it necessarily or and and you can even see there's two ways that you can kind of look at the necessity of this. It necessarily relates to producing a mind. Like minds have developed for a reason. Hegel's saying that they are developing for a specific reason and that they are going to develop and would have always developed. For a specific reason because the relationship that a mind has to nature is this essentially that nature is positing uh essentially uh, you have an identity which is trying to stabilize itself that identity th that relates to essentially a, 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 a where he sees this as a basic formal physical mechanistic process then that turns into a chemical process which establishes an internal identity versus an external identity and you have like particle physics and like uh, chemistry uh, then you have the development of biology and biology coming from this in the sense that there is this constant development towards attempting to gain a stable identity. You have this um, process in which it is self-replicating and self-sustaining in order to try and uh, create a more and more complex and stable identity or the increasing complexity in relation to the stable identity. And as it moves onwards, you end up with the prop, the, the, the attempt to fulfill that goal with the product of with the with what it was like so you go from the nutritive as aristotle would call it because hegel loves the aristotelian soul um which is essentially just the self-sustaining processes of a natural being to the anima the uh, the animal soul and that's the animated self-directed attempts to sustain the identity so you you have at that at that point the birth of the subject 
which is essentially that the goal itself is birthing a process which would maximize the the likelihood that it will self-sustain so it's like if you if if the goal is self a self-sustaining unity it will create a subject in order to self-sustain to a greater and greater degree and that this process will create an, a, a complexity and this is why it's very very much connected to like evolution it will create a process which which gets ever uh, increases in complexity ad infinitum in order to postulate a more and more uh, a being which can sustain itself more and more uh, in that process it becomes rational because the it, it, nature is unable to facilitate for Hegel an implicit understand an implicit essence unity between its being and its essence it realizes that it can't facilitate itself in relation to itself and then you have like the unity of species where it's like okay now you can recognize other members of your species you can gain points of communication which aid you in facilitating those natural drives which allow you to sustain yourself and also posit alternative ends which unite uh, that dialectical viewpoint, right? Whereas this one being and this and its and its negation, which is the other, and the point that Hegel's saying is that the unity of all of these beings, like if we say, I mean, like from the Christian standpoint, the unity of all of these beings is essentially absolute love. If we say that these beings can be absolutely united, which Hegel's saying they must be, and they're moving towards a process politically towards being absolutely united that moving towards the kingdom of heaven i think you wrote that to i don't know if it was Feuerbach. he wrote that let the kingdom of heaven come um and we are moving politically towards this process of an ever-increasing complexity then what we have is essentially a natural process which is directed towards the production of a being which can establish for itself its essence to itself um and that's because it is the same process that we see in its it, it, it's sort of initial standpoint and the reason that you can't have that in an abstract object is one you'd say well you couldn't have it otherwise it wouldn't if it, if it would have worked in a purely abstract way it, it would have but it didn't so like one thing you just reference is that it, it clearly is moving towards the production of consciousness uh, and then the the next is to say that the 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 rational mind because of its uh, essentially adds the capacity of self-reflection is able to posit uh, at a much greater and faster rate, which shows a developing complexity. Uh, the more you ramp that up, the more you you gain this unity of absolute spirit, right? Um, which is why absolute spirit, it's, and remember, it's retro-causative. So the whole point is that this has happened prior to the cause, cause, causal structure beginning, because that, that like, the... the it, like the it, unfolding it's kind of, of a flower. Yeah. Blood, and then through time, the flower unfolds to reveal the oh, yeah. main Exactly. I just want to jump like, in real of... real quick there, fellas. I'm going to give you another about five minutes of this open discussion, and then we're going to uh, jump into the Super Chats. So I just want to let everybody know we still have lots of space and time for more Super Chats. So if you have a question for our debaters, uh, get those in. Uh, go ahead, fellas, carry on. Yeah, but the question is, do we have infinite space and time, right? You know, so that was like a stupid Kantian joke. Okay, like the thing, like the thing, like, uh, the yeah the, the the point is is essentially like even the unity of like a tree right like the progenesis of a species can only be understood if we unite an identity which essentially posits the end as explaining the efficient cause so the final cause explains the efficient cause right so you have this so when it's retro causative and when we talk about something like a wave collapse of a quantum field we already have to posit that 
it does it not only will it must collapse that it when it collapses it collapses in a certain way that the reason it was collapsing is essentially to achieve a certain end and that end is essentially this movement towards this sort of this this overall completeness uh, that it establishes its that existence establishes its essence because being because existence existence and essence are one and the same right like it's kind of like saying you could have an identity of something but you wouldn't be able to say what it is or um or that you know that it wouldn't necessarily be itself it well it doesn't exist it, it doesn't make sense to say that it's something that's not itself right Gotcha. Um, so with our last few minutes here, what do you, how do you, how do you, how would you want to, do you want to just wrap up in the sense of, uh, I can kind of go through what I mean by, um, the one, like, I know I've kind of put, I, I put that concept on the table and didn't really unpack it. Um, because it sounds a lot of what you've said here, um, I think can be done on a theoretical metaphysical speculative level by an abstract object. Um, so let me say something briefly about this because um, I'm I'm kind of harking back to Plato and Parmenides here. Um, and so on my view, the the one, this uh, is a logical entity. It's, it's a, a platonic object, a, a universal abstract object, whatever, whatever term you want to use. Um, it's important to realize that um, this is, not a person it's not a deity of any kind um but it is um what eric steinhardt called self-maximizing self-congruency so congruency is what i take to be the sort of unity that you're describing this purely positive logical value that includes things like consistency um, harmony um, complexity order, like you were talking about with the theological argument, beauty, these are all um, ways of expressing this self-maximizing self-congruency that we find throughout the world. And so I take this to be a very Hegelian idea as well. And so on this model, you know, the purpose of the universe is to contribute as much as possible to cosmic computation. So realizing things you know the possible making the possibilities of the universal wave function of quantum mechanics actual um and universes actual universes in universal wave function exist for the sake of the computation um they exist in order to give concrete existence to certain optimal sequences of computable objects so the whole point of of my methodological naturalist argument is to say that whatever explanatory role, when we look to the historical and natural sciences, and even when we look into metaphysics, any role that we once attributed to this God, that would be a person that would act for reasons, have beliefs, desires, intentions, and some prayers, yada, yada, yada. Any role that we assigned to this being would could be equally or better done by the role of an abstract object. Now, I know a lot of, especially atheists in my camp, are kind of kind of bristle the idea of, you know, platonic objects or the existence of universals. But that's just, that's the nature of metaphysics. Meta metaphysics is, you know, these metaphysical speculations, I agree, can only take us so far. But um, really, those are the only tools that, the way I see it, that you and I could possibly have to try to resolve our disagreements. Um, 
you you mentioned earlier, like, you know, so all the science, scientific facts, it seems like we agree on them. So it's not like we're going to have some sort of science experiment that is going to settle our disagreement. What we're going to have to do is actually go in and do metaphysics. Yeah. The metaphysical, metaphysical reasoning. Yeah. You're going to have to read Hegel. You're going to have to read Kant. You're going to have to read Plato. You're going to have to, you know, it's, it's hard stuff and it's important. Is that a good enough spot to stop their uh, perspective? Or do you have a couple more words you want to share quick? Um, I don't want to do Ben a disservice and they try to say why I don't agree with the idea that it could be an abstract object and not fulfill it because I think I've already outlined in some respects the, what I take to be the case. Um, but I just want to say that I don't think that an abstract object could do it. So like that would be, I think, a point, a port of call if we were to ever have another conversation as to why an abstract object couldn't fulfill this and i think it does boil down to that separation between spinoza and hegel spinoza's is an abstract object hegel's is a subject so we'll have to move between that abstract object to subjectivity and uh you know maybe maybe we'll maybe we'll or what he calls the absolute when we have that next conversation though i'll be sure to make sure i have your model of god right beforehand Oh no, it's no problem. It's no no problem, man. Like I'll make sure that I actually have the time to structure a a solid opening. So, but it's been really fun. I've I've enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, our chat is enjoying it a fair amount as well. It's very electric in there. Shout out to Eddie E. I was having a little fun with him. Um, Before we get into the super chats, uh, in case I didn't mention it yet, maybe it hasn't been said. I need to make absolutely sure it's said. If you're in Austin, Texas. Modern Day Debate is coming live to a stage near you. You can grab tickets right now in the description. And if you want, you can go right into that Indigo campaign as well and show your support uh, to James financially. I promise you, if you buy a ticket for DebateCon 4, James will set your chair up personally. I mean, he's going to set all the chairs up anyways. But yeah, (laughs) he'll be there and he's happy to do it. All right. Also. Uh, modern day debate is growing fast so get your subscriptions uh hit that subscription button and on your way over hit that like button as well i have some super chats we're going to read right now um if you guys have any other super chats you want to provide for our debaters uh, feel free to add them to the chat all right so um for $5 contrarian 420 do both panelists accept that all concepts whether materialistic or spiritual are inherently limited that the description is not the described uh, well so i i certainly would want to warn against confusing the map for the territory um because that's obviously a mistake um i don't know exactly what the questioner means by saying our concepts are limited. Um, so, I mean, obviously, our concepts are limited insofar as they're distinct from one another. You know, the way we de- demarcate concepts from one another, those are obvious limitations. But I would, I think they probably have something stronger in mind um, that I would probably want to push back on. Um, because again, one of the Hegelian themes that I've been most sympathetic to in my readings of Hegel. Um, is 
the idea that knowledge of the world as it is in itself is always mediated by concepts. So like there's there's this there's no way to like get over and above um our concepts. Um well I, I mentioned it earlier by Wilford Sellers, he calls this the myth of the given, this idea of this neutral space where we can just start with everything given and then build our concepts. No, I think it's concepts all the way down. Yeah. I mean, I completely, I couldn't have said that, but it's concepts all the way down. Like it's the best way to, uh, it's all the way back up as well. You know, like depending on which way. Sure. You are, you yeah. Know, whatever direction you know, we go, whatever <laughs> direction you go. And like, uh, like it's, it is, uh, but the, the, I think that like, the, again, like as you sort of say with that is it's, um, is you get this, this point of going like, what the one I say is like, you know, when you say like there's the map and then there is the territory, like, um, the, I think the important thing to recognize is that there is a, a the, the map and the territory are like the territory itself is a kind of mental map that was sort of created in in, the, in its immediated construct uh, and the, the the difference is whether you want to say that there is a real material reality and whether there is or it bottoms out an essence if it bottoms out in in essentially an essence I think the the the, the then you're going to end up having to say that there is essentially a point in which there is a unity of uh, existence with essence. And I think that he, that's what I think he's pushing back on. Um, if if there isn't a, a unity of existence and essence uh, to the point in which there is like an actual truth, um, then, I mean, I think everything is a fiction at that point. You know, it's like, what are we, what are we doing? You know, like... Uh, uh, you know, we're talking. I think that it's. A I think it's a very naive theory for every domain of the world. Yeah. Just like, can you imagine a more implausible view? <laughs> oh no, it would be it would be it's... awful. It would be awful. <laughs> it would it would be it would be terrible. But yeah, I mean, like I'm with you. I think that uh, it doesn't make sense. The idea of an absolutely unmediated reality. I think I find that I find that so impossible. I think that's the. But I mean, this is this is the product of empiricism. I think that this was that's what we see materialistic empiricism. All right. Thank you very much. Our next super chat is from Experiments in Prebiotic Chemistry for $5. The only thing that matters in these debates is whether mind-body dualism is true, because that is the basis of most religions, isn't it? Thanks. Um, so I think there is something, I don't know if I'd put it quite the way they did. Um, I do think that there's an evidential connection here between um, substance dualism and what is often contrasted with it, what is just called physicalism. And so if the world were to turn out fundamentally, fundamentally to be a dualistic world in the sense that there's this sharp distinction between mind and matter, um, I think that would be evidence for some form of deity, um, at least our creator deity in the sense of there's a mind that is distinct from the natural world, and it created the natural world for a reason. Um, but the I, you know, evidence is a symmetrical relationship. And so I think that insofar as we have evidence for physicalism to say that, like, no, all the minds that we are aware with are at least dependent on something physical, that's um, evidence against um, that model of God. Um, I gave this argument as the argument for physical minds to say that um, substance dualism and this radical dualistic natural supernatural concept of God 
um, is inconsistent with our um, what we already know. But it turns out that Lewis's model of God does not have so, this radical distinction. So at the end of the I gave four reasons of, you know, against theism. And I think that one with the consistency with background knowledge isn't going to carry much weight here because I, I, just, I had the wrong model of God uh, as my target. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that, like, um, I, I would be saying, like, oh, all religion is dualistic because I'm a monist, right? So, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, and I think I even think that Thomas Aquinas is a monist. I'd say that the Catholic position is one of monism, which is why God is the end of all things. Not all Catholics, obviously, it's a very diverse tradition. But Protestants I think are mystic. raging so hard right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, like, honestly, uh, the, the, the Christian infighting is the best kind of infighting. It's, 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 it's so unbelievably unsympathetic for whatever reason, like, uh, but the thing is, like, you'd be surprised at how passionate, like, even Orthodox and Catholics can argue over the. Well, both I mean, they're wrong. Camps, I mean, they're absolutely both of our wrong. Camps will eat their own. I've seen it happen. It's wild. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh exactly, exactly. It's. I mean, the the thing is, I'm I'm saying this. I will hunt. I'll be like, no, the the Orthodox are wrong. Um, uh, you know, the Protestants are wrong. So I'm I'm just as bad in some respects, but. But yeah, like, but I was just going to say, like, you know, there are monistic accounts. And uh, I mean, you've got loads of religions that are monistic. I mean, there's monistic interpretations of Hinduism. There's monistic interpretations of uh, Buddhism. There's monistic interpretations of Catholicism, like I'm presenting There's now. monistic interpretations yeah. of Taoism. There's more like, like, <laughs> like literally the, the 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 tradition that's like dual everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, it, it, the, the, there's, so like, you know, maybe it's just. A little bit more mediated. Don't worry. It's not all mind-body dualism, you know. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Um, Brett Bernhoft, $2, asks, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Um, I mean, it depends on your interpretation, right? Like, I, I, as a Catholic, I'm happy to say that the interpretation of the Bible is in relation to the living tradition, which is constantly being understood. So I don't think we understand the Bible. Uh, in its entirety, I don't think we understand the concepts, um, but and how to even understand how to even read them. And I'm a big fan of hermeneutics in this. So I think that the problem is, is that a lot of people want to read scripture and they want to look towards it and take a literal interpretation and say it says, "Well, the gays are bad, and we should hate the gays," and you know all that without actually underlying un analyzing the underlying um, expressions of these things. It's kind of like the way I would approach it is kind of like a psycho a psychoanalyst approaching. Uh, the the contents of a dream narrative in the same way as you would uh, you know analyze the contents of a spiritual narrative in terms of revelation like why is this being said not what is the contents of of just what you're saying and it's sort of dumb understanding like you know a sort of dumb basic reading that an evangelical will sort of spout out but why is this written this way what kind of revelation are we supposed to be getting from this and what does this indicate to us uh, and I think when you look at hermeneutics, you realize that without considering the things like intentionality of the author, without considering uh, what unifies the peace in relation to things like love, um, and and ultimately this uh, relationship between the the individual passage and the unity of the overall conceptual end, uh, the Bible becomes incoherent anyway. So does pretty much everything. I mean, that's philosophical hermeneutics. Arguably, so does all of reality. So. Uh, I, I don't think that we should be reading the Bible uh, to hate the gay people 
and do all the nasty things because I think that actually is goes against many of the fundla- underlying fundamental principles of Christianity. So um, any of those of listeners that might be familiar with my backstory, um, I grew up in a fundamentalist Quaker uh, tradition in the American South, and I have a gay younger brother. And so you can imagine that didn't go over quite well um, by many members of my family. And so this is one of those topics where I have a horse in the race. And I remember when I was, I was once a theist myself and it was in struggling with certain questions like this one in particular that eroded my faith over time. Um, And in my experience, um, the two things that really stuck out in my mind is the first, the Old uh, Testament is the only place where you actually find statements about homosexuality. It's actually not very much mentioned in the New Testament. It is not mentioned at all by the person of Jesus. And so you have to have a pretty tenuous reading um, of certain scriptures in order to draw the conclusion that you want. In the analogous way is you can try to read the Bible to be the idea that the sun orbits the earth. But again, I think if you, like Lewis said, I would echo much of what he said. Like if you really go into the hermeneutics of it and you really like, what is the intent of this passage? You know, is a lot of this is literature and it's sir, like the writers had an intent and a purpose and that just wasn't the intent and purpose for it. But the second point that I think is, is what does it matter? Even if, you know, it said clearly in the Bible, um, homosexuality is wrong. The question is, why is homosexuality wrong? We would still be no clearer into understanding the normative uh, reason why it was wrong. And so some, uh, this is where this will shade inevitably into critiques of divine command ethics. Because where you say, like, just because God commanded it um, doesn't make it right or good. This is, you know, Euthyphro's dilemma. Um, a lot of ink has already been spilled a lot on this. Uh, I've talked about this issue elsewhere and other places for real theology. So um, again, I have a horse in the race. So um, I'm certainly biased in this area. All right. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Our next super chat comes from Julio for $5 in a previous debate. Lewis said that materialism has been ripped apart and absolutely destroyed. Ben, what do you make of it? Uh, So I would wonder what uh, the definition of materialism was being used, because I certainly do agree with Lewis that there are certain naive forms of materialism. No one today really thinks that it's just atoms in a void. Um, That's Mm -hmm. a pretty naive uh, conception of materialism. Um, I find the terms materialism, physicalism, and naturalism to be quite slippery and often used interchangeably and conflated, which is why I tried to give um, a very precise definition, as as precise as can be done um, for our purposes of naturalism. And so my naturalism is very close to Quine. Um, So Quine famously was a naturalist, but he was also a Platonist. So 
him and Hillary Putnam developed what was called the indispensability argument, which was basically saying, you know, mathematics is indispensable to science. And mathematics, mathematics requires us to postulate mathematical objects. And so he was a Platonist. Um, and he thought that our best way of understanding what the world was like is through our explanatory reasoning and our experiences of the world. And so I've tried to keep the spirit of Quine um, in the presentation that I gave in my opening um, of laying out what I think is a plausible form of metaphysical naturalism. But now, again, these are these are really big questions. This is really deep metaphysics. I don't at all pretend to, say, to, to think that I've had the last word on this. This is just when I approach these big questions, this is where my thinking at is these days. What, what do you mean you haven't finished metaphysics? You haven't yeah, finished I know. philosophy. German really? idealism is still uh, incomplete. <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah. But no, I think that's, look, I, I mean, to be fair, like uh, when I criticize physicalism, uh, I take it to be uh, uh, that the natural world can be boiled, well, that the, the, the reality can be boiled down to essentially fundamental quantitative principle, like quantitative uh, relations, like. Um, like charge position uh spin uh fundamentally um and that's all um uh very much in the in the sort of light of bernardo castrop in that where he does the same and i think my response is to, to a position like yours would be like well at what point isn't it physicalism anymore you know at what point is, is it something else and you know are we just adding in a sort of conceptual relation and that's fine, right? Like, that's not to say that you'd be wrong. It's just to say, like, for the point of what we call it, it seems that when you're not talking about, uh, you know, you even said yourself, you don't believe in an unmediated reality, right? Like, to say that you don't believe in an unmediated reality is to say that, like, reality is in some way, like, uh, where I would call it mind-dependent, where you might say that it is, like, dependent upon the existence of abstract objects, which may may or may not be immaterial, like, depending on how, you know, how, how we define them. So the to say that, like, that's physicalist, I think would be, like, I would say that's something like a neutral monism, right? Like, it, it, like that, I would normally define something like that as, like, a neutral monism. But, I mean, it, it doesn't matter, really, what you call it, necessarily, to the truth of the position anyway. It's just a point of going, all right, is... Um, you know, is this position correct, right? Like, that's the big, you know, the big overall goal. But my point really is to say that, like, that kind of naive materialism that you referenced earlier, right? The the, the sort of... Atoms in a void. Atoms in a void, or even, um, you know, uh, abstract physical principle um, in the sense of it just boiling down to, like, charge, spin, uh, position. Scientism. Um, I think we would both... Yeah. Scientism, very, very yeah. critical of a of a scientific approach to knowledge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, at that point is that's the point in which I think I think it's I think it's been ripped apart by now. I think it's I think it's been murdered. I, I would agree with that. I think that yeah. it really. Uh, uh, I think it was Alex Rosenberg came out with a book, and he kind of tried to re-embrace the label of scientism. I was like, dude, stop! Don't just stop. <laughs> <laughs> please, please. well i mean you you like sellers as well i mean you, you you like uh like if you like sellers like like the two what is it the the, the sort of uh his argument his two-pronged argument against empiricism is pretty pretty wild and he has a really he has like a big argument against this idea of an unmediated reality where it's just like absolutely and then brandon loves that you know have 
interesting yeah. arguments along those lines. Yeah. Sorry. So uh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next super chat from Bren. Uh, sorry, Brett Bernhoff again. A question for Ben. What should atheists do about white American Christian nationalism? Oh, man. Um, I wish I had a good answer. So this is a question that I've thought a lot about, in, certainly in the political realm. Um, we, it's a very real problem, especially here in America. Um, unfortunately, um, about all I'm good for is pointing at the problem. I don't really have solutions. Can I can I just say I I think if anything I, like I know inspiring philosophy hates that nationalistic approach I don't think it has to be racial I think it's only racial because I think it ties in a lot with racists uh, but I think it's because it lends itself to fascists just trying there's to there's a selection themselves. effect going on there <laughs> yeah yeah it's it, it it's um but I think like reality is is that if you're a good Christian like and you understand Christianity and you have a critical philosophical approach that I think someone like Hegel would say that the only way you could be truly religious is if you had that kind of philosophical approach you'd see that as an obscene political stance for a Christian to hold like it's uh awful so hopefully go watch inspiring philosophy on it that's uh, he 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 hates it <laughs> he hates it um I have I guess radical political views in the sense that I think that voting should be mandatory. I think that it's like, now that doesn't mean like someone should come lock you up if you don't vote, but like you should have to pay a fine if you don't vote. Like, I think like if you're going to participate in society, you should be part of the political system. And I think if everyone were required to vote, I think a lot of that nationalist voice would just be drowned out because I think at the end of the day, and I don't have numbers to back this up, but I suspect the very vast majority of people don't hold those beliefs. And the reason why they're so pr predominant is because not a lot of the people who don't hold the, the people who hold those beliefs show up to vote for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. It's almost as though I'm motivated. I think that, the, you know, like, as you said, I don't think it's that obscene to talk about political incentivization. I know Aristotle's a big fan of it, uh, but he thinks of it like, you know, you, you, you find the rich, you, you give to the poor, right? Like, so the poor, like who don't turn up to vote, and it's largely the poor that don't vote. You give them an incentive to vote. Um, you know, you say like, if you turn up to vote, you'll gain a tax break. Or if you, you know, if you if you turn if you don't turn if you turn up to vote, you you know, you get something positive, and that way you don't have to co coerce them as much. And as well, a lot of them don't have anything to lose by not turning up. So like, you know, you you end up threatening them with things like prison time is going to cost the state. You know, so it's it's I think that, and then as well, like, I mean, like you know, we could probably have a full conversation about like political, like constitution, but I think it's, it's incredibly difficult to even get people to vote in their own interests and understand what their interests are. Like a bunch of pe uneducated people turning up to vote um, in relation to causes that don't understand is also a big problem, right? Like you end up with people, uh, you end up with populism, right? And so, so yeah, I mean, We've got to do something. I just, uh, but uh, I mean, I, I keep, I just, I'm starting to just turn the news off. I can't look at it. I think I'm, I've, I've come to the conclusion that like maybe Nietzsche was right. Maybe like the life of a philosopher is to just go and live in the woods or something, you know? Like it's uh, these people, man. Like, what can you do? Like, <laughs> some questions are just beyond me. And I feel like some of those political questions are just, I get the, I get that there's a problem there and I get that something has to be done. But what this, 
a lot of people seem really confident in their solutions and I have no idea. <laughs> That's the, so That's the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem. Everyone thinks they've got the answer. They don't. They don't have the answer. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I have an opinion to share. And it's my opinion. Everyone should really quickly hit over, run over and just hit that like button for me, okay? Before we finish here for the day. I'd like to see triple-digit likes. Yeah, man. That's that's just you got it. You got to do perspective. Did you hit like yet? Is it you holding it back? Well, yep. He just yeah. look. I just saw him go. So perspective's <laughs> going to go hit that like button. I already know Ben. Light in the reflection of his eyes. Um, if nothing else, uh, Siggy Sigwald, a, a huge channel supporter, he's here all the time, very active. Just gifted another fifty memberships to everyone watching right now. So if uh, if you can't hit like for me or our debaters, hit like for him, so that you know I get the advantages of those likes for his contribution. Um, but he also contributes a question. So from Siggy Sigwald, our last super chat for the day, I've never been a theist, so I found the idea just ridiculous. For perspective philosophy, how do you cope with the fact that at its core, a belief in God is just an irrational belief? Since the argument for a God that could be considered seriously and nowhere near a specific God. Um, I mean, I completely disagree in the sense that I think that it's absolutely, I mean, the way I argue for God is the exact opposite, right? Like, I don't believe loaded that you questions can have are true... loaded. Yeah, yeah. I don't think if you can have a truly, truly, by the way, sorry. Siggy just did another 20 memberships, just he's just fantastic. buying his way to the truth. He, he's truly political, right? Okay. No, but yeah, the, the, the thing is, is that like, uh, I know I, I actually think that you can gain like to specific divine attributes, not like some sort of deism. Um, for, I think that Aquinas does a really good job of outlining from why from divine simplicity, you would, you know, gain these attributes, uh, you know, Leibniz argues essentially why you would get, you know, get to divine simplicity. So does Aquinas, so does Hegel. Hegel argues that there's specific logical relations within God, which express the Trinity. Um, and why it necessarily must be structured like this. If you go and check out um, his arguments in relation to, uh, in the science of logic, in relation to uh, universals, uh, universals, particulars, and individuals, in relation to the different forms of syllogisms and how it turns into the absolute syllogism, you'll see his defense of the Christian Trinity as the best exp expression of God. Um, why it's uh, personhood in the same, in the same, um, in the same book, uh, there's loads of uh, arguments for the specific attributes of God and also for God in more abstract ways. I think that the reason that a lot of people typically look towards theists as not being willing to defend specific um, conceptions of God is because they aren't engaged in philosophy. They're engaged in the theater of debate, specifically online. And, it, you know, it's one thing to run the Calum cosmological argument as someone who's not familiar with uh, philosophy, but there's another thing to be willing to defend the Christian Trinity. That's a, that's a much more difficult, um, you know, position to hold. Uh, but you can see debates. There was a great debate between Joshua, I can't remember his name. It's like Joshua Sidaway. 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 Thank Did you. you uh, and um, oh, now come uh, with a Neoplatonist Muslim. It was like so. It's a Catholic versus a Muslim on the specific attributes of God uh, from a, basically a Catholic, a Christian Aristotelian perception 
of God in relation to the Trinity versus essentially a Neoplatonic conception of God, both arguing for concrete relations inside of a concept of divinity. So Christians, even online, are willing to do this. You've just got to find the ones that are willing to do this. You've got to find the you've got to look for the arguments yourself and maybe stop being so lazy. I don't know. <laughs> well, you're, um, you're not off the hook yet, perspective, because while you spoke, Siggy threw in another five dollar well, super I, chat. I wanted to uh you wanna you wanna add, add? Yeah, well right. so uh because I, I agree with a lot of what Lewis said there. Um in the sense of, I'm uh, trying to think of who, uh, Keith, uh, one of my favorite philosophers of mine right now is uh, Keith Frankish. And I want to say he tweeted it out or something. I can't remember, but he's, it went along the lines of, in philosophy, if you think the answer is obvious, then you haven't understood the question. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's exactly right. And so like, if you think any of the questions uh, perennial questions of philosophy have easy answers or are obvious. I would, I would suggest to to put the brakes on and look a little bit more into it because I think that religious belief can't be reduced to a psychological phenomena of coping with death or something. Like if you if, yeah. like if you look at like the psychological literature for why people are religious, like you just won't find these views in that literature because i don't think it's a plausible explanation i think religious religion serves certain functions sometimes it can serve explanatory functions it tries to make the world more intelligible other times it's an expression of a form of life um and so it's just it long story short it's complicated <laughs> yeah yeah i couldn't have said it better myself i think that's absolutely right man sorry so what's well, the next one go on siggy sidwald decided it was worth five bucks to claim that not even the Kalam, the closest to an argument for God, gives you a specific God. Um, well, yeah, sorry, but like an ontological I, argument does. I mean, like, it, it. I mean, the point is, is that it's usually like a series of arguments anyway. So like, like, so I know Edward Faser gives arguments, because uh, I mean, I guess Scott sent them before this, where it was like, you know, he's like, read this, go in with this, like, you don't want to be friends. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's the Aquinian position where it's the five ways. And But like, you know, if you read something, if you pick up something like Summa Theologica, right, and you read proof of the existence of God, and then you go down and you go to the, you know, is God all good? Is God uh, omnipotent? Like, is he all powerful? Is he is he all knowing? Is he you know all present? He gives specific arguments for each one of those divine attributes. If you, as I say, you go into Hegel and they give specific arguments for divine attributes. There are arguments for them, and he might even be just one argument. You might say like I often relate arguments as one argument for one thing, and then from that I can then build it into something more substantial, right? Um, so so yeah, like. I do think that Christian debaters online, there's a lot of ones that I'm like, oh God, I can't believe they're representing Christianity. I imagine Ben probably feels the same with like atheist debaters half the time. Like, um, you know, like you, you see certain debates online and you're like, oh dear Lord, like um, this guy's arguing, you know, that for the most, the, the stupidest reading of the Bible and just not even listening and just saying that the earth's 5,000 years old. So like, uh, and you know, I'm, I want to cry at, that, at, you know, points like that. So I can understand, you know, we don't have necessarily the best PR team. We don't, <laughs> you know, we do have a lot of people who are willing to say a lot of stupid stuff. Um, but just, 
you know, the stupid people everywhere. It doesn't make that they, what they're trying to express. It might be beyond them. They might not understand it themselves, but don't assume that all, all of our beliefs are the same as theirs, you know? You got a couple there, uh, last words, Ben, before we sign off. Um, yeah, so I would, uh, recommend to people to really spend some time in, um, classical thinkers from the Western canon of philosophy. So, um, Spinoza's ethics, um, Leibniz's monadology, Descartes' meditations, Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion. These are all great ways of getting a a good idea of the history of thought about the question of God's existence and how central it has been in shaping our ways of thinking about not just religion in particular, but just in science, history, and art in general. And to um, have an open mind, um, face facts brutally, and at all times try to be charitable with the people you're uh, in discussion with and to make arguments as best you can to try to see see what arguments work, what arguments don't work, and if they don't work, why they don't work. Um, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose from honest inquiry like that. Well, Siggy comes in I'm under the wire here real quick, and I'm going to allow this last super chat. Um, that the ontological argument requires you have faith to be convinced by it. The Kalam goes from something to someone without proper justification. Um, I mean, look, I'm I'm not here to defend. Like, I think the ontological argument um, requires essentially a... a it's, uh, I would go so far as to say that the ontological argument requires the existence of a necessary being to be given credence so that the necessary being is the being thinking of itself, um, which is why I think it relates to a teleological argument but I think that the the way that it's structured in the sort of Hegelian standpoint is to say that both the cosmological and the teleological and the ontological argument are essentially interconnected in the sense that none of the arguments stand alone, that they are essentially very, very much in a Hegelian sense, performing different rational functions in relation to giving explanatory power in relation to sort of the functions of uh, or, or sort of uh, logical functions. So, you know, each syllogism has its own purpose in relation to the specific causal account of God, which you're aiming at at that point. So whether it's the formal account, which is the ontological argument, whether it's the uh, final account in the teleological argument, or whether it's the efficient account in the uh, cosmological argument, I think that they all have specific logical functions and they're all interrelated. And the point of Hegel and Aristotle is to say that these causes are necessarily codependent anyway. So I don't think any one of those arguments by themselves can stand scrutiny um, if you don't understand the other arguments that and the other aspects of identity that are essentially being argued from the other perspectives. Uh, in relation to, you know, people arguing the Kalam, it depends on who's arguing it and why and what they're arguing. They might throw some other arguments in there depends on who's doing it again do you know what i mean so so yeah but uh but thanks and again ben i think as just to quickly say like i think you know the, you're absolutely right as well in saying like um a good honest discussion is like the best way to go good honest inquiry 
And uh, I think you've exhibited those virtues yourself in this conversation. I think it's, I think it's been really great. I think the same of you too. I'm so glad that we were finally able to do this and I, I can't wait to do it again. I think the level of respect during this entire debate was incredibly high. Um, I think even maybe a bar has been raised. So much so that Siggy sends another two bucks just to thank you for answering his questions. You're, oh, you're good from perspective. You're good. Awesome. You're good. But he spends more money Cheers. to show gratitude. Um, so uh, from myself, from Eddie E. Siggy, Perspective Philosophy, Ben Watkins, uh, thanks everyone for hanging out with us tonight or this afternoon, rather, depending on where you are. And if you're in Austin, Texas, don't forget to check out DebateCon 4. You may have missed the first three. Don't miss this one. It's going to be amazing, as a certain someone we all love would say. Uh, gentlemen, have a great night, and uh, take it easy. We'll see you all again next time, hopefully. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. It's a pleasure.